0: Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and I'm joined on this episode by Dr. Bob Bell to talk about healthcare in our province and country, the key challenges facing our healthcare system, and what we should make of the proposed expansion of for-profit delivery and surgical procedures proposed by Premier Ford. Now, Dr. Bob Bell is a former surgeon. He served as Ontario's Deputy Minister of Health from 2014 to 2018 and he's held senior leadership positions at a number of healthcare organizations, including as president and CEO of the University Health Network. With that background, he's also a regular public commentator on healthcare reform, and it's his recent writing on the subject of for-profit delivery that prompted this particular conversation. At the federal level, the prime minister sort of skated on this question of for-profit delivery when he was asked about it. He rightly noted that the delivery of healthcare is within provincial jurisdiction, so long as it accords with the Canada Health Act. Dr. Bob Bell, on the other hand, takes a much stronger position. Dr. Bell, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Nathaniel. Please call me Bob if you don't mind. I definitely will. So Bob, Premier Ford says the status quo is unacceptable. And I think many Canadians, many Ontarians would be hearing that and and agreeing in some ways that parents of young kids who have taken their kids to the emergency room and seen seven-hour wait times and then had to leave probably feel the same way. Now. It's a different question as to what the answer to these challenges are and and how we we fix the status quo. Doug Ford has recently described his expansion of for-profit surgery clinics as a bold move to address the status quo. How would you describe it?
1: Well, I'm going to answer a slightly different question, and that is that I totally agree with the premier that change is needed. And when we're talking about community surgery clinics, we're talking about surgical wait times. And Nathaniel, as you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon by background, so this is something that I've thought about for over 45 years working in the Ontario Health System. And the premier is right. We need to move a lot of surgery out of hospitals into community surgery facilities. We 100% agree on that because... The international evidence, evidence from Canada, demonstrates that you can do about 30% more surgery in the same time, the same money, if you do it in the community rather than hospitals. Why is that? Not that hospitals are inefficient, as some people would suggest, but they're designed for the sickest patients. They have the most systems there for backup. They have to run emergency departments, imaging centers, whereas community surgery centers are purpose-built for rapid throughput of common surgery. So we agree on that, the Premier and I. Where we don't agree is that my belief is these should be run by publicly funded organizations. Hospitals in many cases have moved surgery to community surgery centers that they run. Community groups like Kensington Eye Institute in Toronto have done the same thing. So there are a variety of ways of doing this without involving Profit. And I think profit is a
0: big mistake here. And for listeners, to make sure we are clear about the question, Doug Ford has said, in fairness, that people are going to pay with their OHIP card, not their credit card. And and the core idea there is that public health insurance, it is our public health insurance that protects the core idea that everyone deserves the same quality of care, regardless of one's socioeconomic status. Now, for-profit delivery is what we're talking about covered by OHIP. And you still suggest for-profit delivery is a problem. Walk us through the reasons why we, I think it's pretty obvious why private insurance challenges equity in the system. It's it's on its face. Why is for-profit delivery such a challenge?
1: Well, the first reason is the taxpayer suffers when we move to for-profit care. Um, you know, because somebody has to make profit from this, right? That's why for-profit organizations get into this. And the best example is what we're seeing in Ontario right now: moving cataracts to LASIK centers, which is essentially what the Ford government's doing. And you know, the Ford government is paying $605 per case for a cataract operation if this is being done in the for-profit center. If it's being done in the hospital, the rate is about $455. So there's $150 difference per case in what they're paying for-profit organizations or hospitals, even if those hospitals are providing care in an ambulatory, in a community surgery center. And inevitably this happens. It happens all the time. But once you get for-profit centers organized, once they start delivering quote-unquote publicly funded care, they charge more to the government. It's happened in Alberta. It's happened in Saskatchewan. It's now happening in Ontario. The second concern I have is that hospitals and not-for-profit community organizations are careful not to upsell patients. The upselling that goes on in private LASIK for-profit centers when they do cataracts is part of their history. They've been doing cataracts and LASIK centers for years. And they haven't been getting the $605 per case, but they have been charging clients $2,000 to $3,000 typically for upselling various tests they say are uninsured or for upselling quote-unquote premium lenses. So there's a good history in these centers of upselling people taking money off their credit card rather than their OHIP card for charges they say are uninsured. And I'm sure this is going to continue as these private LASIK for-profit centers now start doing cataracts and getting the $605. It's not going to stop them from upselling people on lenses and other features.
0: The upselling is the real challenge in many ways to the, the equity concerns. And I think we can bracket out the efficiency considerations for the taxpayer from the equity concerns, fairness of who is Receiving care, and are we ensuring people are receiving the same quality of care, regardless of, of how much money they happen to have? And I, I wasn't entirely aware of the depth of upselling and and just the prevalence of it already in, in the poor because we do have for profit delivery, as as you've described, in in some ways in the system already. And the Auditor General has a report where this is referenced, and they say the ministry has no oversight mechanism. To prevent patients from being misinformed and being charged inappropriately for publicly funded surgeries and then with cataracts they actually had they hired a mystery shopper firm and made dozens of phone calls and they found there was there were misleading elements to what these companies were engaged in and at a minimum it was just entirely opaque and consumers weren't being provided the information they deserved. well
1: then i think that's going to continue in the future i mean These for-profit centers in Ontario are inspected by the College of Physicians and Surgeons in Ontario who have advised the premier not to do this. That's the organization responsible for inspection. And when they inspect, they don't go in and say, tell us how much you're upselling lenses for. Tell us the margin you're charging on premium lenses. They simply go in and make sure that sterilization features, you know, which are important, are appropriate and that basic rudimentary safety concerns are being met. They certainly do not look at the business model that these for-profit clinics are running on, nor will they in the future. When the minister has been asked this, she said, well, we'll respond to citizen complaints. So citizen complaints are going to be how we regulate and (laughs) make sure that these are not overcharging. Uh, I guess that's the only thing that's been suggested to this point
0: and on the efficiency argument and and the concerns there the you're right the colleges of the college of physicians and surgeons of ontario came out against and said we as, exactly as you're describing it we need nonprofit care integrated with the hospital system now i went back and read the ontario medical association's report on this from about a year ago it was in february of 2022 and initially they did not take a strong view in favor of nonprofits. They ev- they eventually changed their mind and and they said to the premier it should be nonprofit focused. But initially, the report specifically said the idea of non-hospital care can elicit emotional reactions and give rise to concerns about privatized two-tier medicine. And then they go on to say there is unclear differentiation between privately and publicly paid services and privately delivered services. Uh, and they're recommending, they effectively, what the Ford government's doing integrated ambulatory centers or community surgery clinics, as, as you describe them. But they basically say, on this initial view, they were agnostic as between for profit and nonprofit delivery. And they pointed to Prairie View Health Center in Saskatchewan, for profit delivery, as compared with the Kensington Eye Institute in Ontario, nonprofit delivery. And they basically say both models operate through public funding, so they're consistent with the Canada Health Act. They say both have strong clinical oversight regimes and strong partnerships with public hospitals, both reduce wait times and improve patient outcomes and experience. And then they say, ultimately, it is a political choice as to whether ambulatory clinic expansion is confined to nonprofit delivery or may include for-profit organizations that meet quality standards. They've changed that view, obviously, since that time. But there are enough doctors, obviously, part of the OMA. This initial report took a particular view. What do you say to those doctors who are saying, well, look, there's the Prairie View Health Center in Saskatchewan, or they point to Shoulders here in Toronto, and they say some for-profit is efficient, provides high-quality care, and doesn't bring the same concerns that you are articulating here around efficiency?
1: Well, Nathaniel, the first thing I'd say is you are very well-informed. I'm impressed. You've done your work on this. Good for you. Um, so there are two things I'd say. First of all, let's look at the Shoal which the Premier and the Minister love to point to, if I may start off there. And Shoal is a for-profit center doing nothing but hernia repairs. If you get your hernia fixed in any hospital in Ontario, you go in in the morning and you leave in the afternoon. If you go to the Shoal you have to agree to a three-day stay. You have to come in the night before and you have to stay for a couple of days. And you know they charge you for that. That's not covered. That's an uninsured service. Those overnight stays are uninsured. And that's where they make their profit. They don't make profit by charging the government for the facility fees for doing your hernia repair. They do it by charging you out of pocket or through your health insurance for... Staying overnight. And the other way they ensure that you're going to be a profitable client is they have a highly, highly selective process for determining who they look after. They don't look after seniors, they don't look after obese people. They like to look after well insured, wealthy people who are reasonably healthy and happen to have a hernia. Now, if you're in an Ontario hospital, those are the people you're looking after. You're looking after everybody that comes through the door and needs their hernia fixed, which you do effectively by laparoscopic surgery, a different operation, discharging them that evening. Uh, the results in shoulder ice have never been compared to the results in the hospital system. The thought is they're probably about the same, but they're definitely more expensive and they're more expensive to your Visa card, not your OHIP card. So that's one concern. There's an example of upselling people based not on science, not on evidence, based on profit because Scholice needs to
0: make a profit. It's a profit-making an organization, and it's a direct challenge to equity. It's, we we can say, well, it's public health insurance, and that, and that's the core idea. But if there is upselling in the case of cataracts, or in the case of should ice where it's not even really a matter of upselling because it's required that you stay for the these number of days it's just a an additional private fee on your credit card that you got to pay to participate even in in the in the publicly funded surgery these are direct challenges to fairness in our system not everyone can afford it and the core idea here is everyone should be able to receive the same quality of care how, how did uh, the minister minister jones did a an interview spot where she was being pressed on this particular question of upselling and her defense was effectively, as far as I could understand it, she was pointing to existing smaller examples of upselling in the public system. And she would point to in a hospital, for example, you can pay an additional sum for a private room. And do you see that kind of upselling as a related challenge to equity? Is that an acceptable element of upselling in the system? And is that, or in Minister Jones's view, is that an example of what exists that fair game for anyone else to do with that?
1: Yeah, no, I was very discouraged by the minister's comparison because it sort of suggests she doesn't understand the Canada Health Act, which is fundamental to our definition of Medicare, which, you know, and Canadians probably don't understand that because it gets kind of, it gets kind of, difficult to get down to the nub of the matter, which is medically necessary care, that the Canada Health Act reflects medically necessary care. And, you know, having a TV in your room, having a private room when you're in a hospital is not medically necessary care. Getting your hernia fixed, if you need to get your hernia fixed, is medically necessary care. And we should have an equitable approach to who gets access to medically necessary care, and to me, that means that you shouldn't be charged extra in order to get into a hospital that's getting public funding. You know, it's not that you're being charged extra at the show for, you know, a TV or a private room, although you do get charged extra for a private room. It's that you can't go there and get your hernia fixed unless you're agreeing to stay for three nights, which costs you out of pocket. So that's what concerns me. And it concerns me that the you know the government is sort of reflecting that that's equivalent to having a telephone in your room.
0: What do you make of the challenge back on the question of innovation and competition generally speaking? i'm I'm going to have a hearing soon in the industry committee with Roger Shaw videotron and We're going to, we're facing a a challenge in Canada in a number of different instances, whether it's grocery stores or telecommunications or banking, where we're a country of oligopolies. Competition would be welcome in these sectors. When you look at innovation in the healthcare space, what do you say to people who who say for-profit delivery, more for-profit delivery, some for-profit delivery will be better than others. A lot of for-profit delivery will bring efficiency, bring costs down ultimately, and we'll see greater levels of innovation.
1: Well, you know, the typical outcome in Canada with respect to for-profit delivery is it increases costs, as we've talked about. It's innovation in the way of increasing costs. So let me describe to you, you know, you mentioned the Saskatchewan surgery clinics. My other concern regarding the bigger move the government's making, they're paying LASIK centers too much money to do for-profit care where people are at risk of being upsold. That's a problem. However, it's nowhere near as big a problem as the next stage of this, which is to do MRIs and CTs in for-profit community centers, and eventually to be doing total hips and total knees and other surgery in for-profit centers. If we look at MRI, probably across the country, a substantial proportion of MRIs done are unnecessary. You know, in an orthopedic surgery, if you have back pain, chances are you're going to get an MRI. Um, Hospitals tend to say, hey, you don't need an MRI for your back pain. You know, you need to do some physio. Unless you're having surgery, you don't need an MRI. If you've got arthritis to your hip and you're heading for a hip replacement, you don't need an MRI, even though they're frequently requested. These inappropriate tests have two characteristics. First of all, they waste money for the healthcare system. They cost money. They put people on waiting lists for tests they don't need. Secondly, they are usually tests that make radiologists the fa- and companies that are providing them fast as quick as turnaround times that are profitable. So my concern is when we see MRIs being offered in the community, we're going to see an increase in the amount of inappropriate testing that's being done because that'll be profitable testing. Innovation for a for-profit facility, is let's do more unnecessary testing because it's more profitable. That's innovation for a for-profit company, as opposed to the tough innovation that needs to be done. That is in the publicly funded system, how do we make sure that we're doing the appropriate tests that are the most cost-effective for people? Not just what they want, an MRI might need, but what they actually need to improve their care. Now, it's a bit paternalistic to say to people, well, not everybody can have an MRI of their knee. I'm sorry. But figuring out the right way to offer people MRIs is part of what our publicly funded system needs to do to be cost effective. And that cost effective necessity is being broken when we introduce the innovation of for-profit care, because their direction is not to make sure we're more innovative in the way of providing appropriate care. It's to be more profitable without caring about whether care is appropriate.
0: I like that answer because <clears throat> I have to admit, I came at this ideologically from a perspective on public health insurance, where I say that's non-negotiable. There's fairness that we absolutely need to demand where everyone receives the same quality of care, regardless of their financial status. But I was much more open to the idea that, well, so long as people are not having to pay out of pocket, Maybe yeah. more competition in this space, for profit, nonprofit, and yet, and and it's that question. It was actually a, you know, so long as we can protect the equity grounds, and I, and I, I think we have to take seriously the upselling considerations, and and those are very concerning. But on efficiency grounds, I was surprised, and your answer is the, overwhelmingly, I think, the right one based on the evidence I've I've read on cost effectiveness and on efficiency. Nonprofit also carries a day, and so one needn't be ideological about this. One just needs to follow the evidence. Oh.
1: No you know uh, again I'm I'm impressed by the thought that you've put into this and the testing that you've done in terms of the direction you you want to advise but you know you have to recognize the asymmetry of information that exists between physicians and patients right um let's face it you have to trust your doctor cuz you don't have anywhere near enough information to make the decision they're going to advise you to have if you introduce a profit motive on that asymmetric innovate or that asymmetric information interaction, where the doctor doesn't not only, you know, the doctor will always have your best interests in mind, but has a variety of things they can recommend to you. If they have a profit motive that if they suggest this set of solutions, they're going to make more money than if they suggest these. Suddenly that trust. And the way that we think about public health care breaks down dramatically. That's when we start to get into the American system of physicians who make profit advising you, not necessarily only with your best interest in mind, but also with their best interest in mind.
0: I want to move to other ways of fixing the healthcare care system. But before we do, just to close off the conversation on public nonprofit delivery and, and for-profit delivery, doctors... Are in many cases incorporated as Canadian controlled private corporations. They are for-profit delivery in a public system. And then we also see an expansion of the use of pharmacies uh, from the provincial government, which initially, I have to say, intuitively struck me as maybe a welcome idea to deliver sure. care more quickly and, and more accessibly. They are again for-profit enterprises. So as we look at the expansion of for-profit surgery clinics, and and I think you know, I, in reading the OMA's recommendations from a year ago, it seemed very clear, move non-acute surgeries out of hospitals. You've described major efficiency gains. As you expand that those systems, community surgery clinics, nonprofit clinics, makes eminent sense as you're building new clinics. When you have existing pharmacies, when you have existing doctors, you, you have this existing apparatus and in in this infrastructure in place. Do you have the same opposition when you look at CCPCs and when you look at The expansion of the use of pharmacies?
1: No, you know, I, I think the thing that Canadians misunderstand, and I'm going to broaden your question, if you don't mind, Nathaniel, is the fact that compared to other countries, people talk about Canada as having, you know, only publicly funded healthcare, you hear the comments, it's embarrassing the Premier made this comment in Ontario that only North Korea and Cuba have only public systems, they don't be private systems. That was in a fact, particularly embarrassing comment. I wasn't even going to mention it, but that was a particularly embarrassing comment. That was horrifying. Uh, you know, and you're in charge of the system, Premier. Uh anyway, if that's what you believe. So um if we look at the amount of public versus quote unquote private for-profit spending in the Canadian system, we actually have more for-profit care funding in Canada than the vast majority of other countries, especially in Western Europe. Over 30% of care in Canada, especially PharmaCare, care, a lot of eye care, um, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, a lot of mental health services are yeah, only- th- th- Yeah, talk therapy, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're only provided by for-profit providers and not provided by publicly funded sources. So when we look at the things that we define as medically necessary under the Canada Health Act, it's a shrinking part of the care that Canadians need. So it really worries me when politicians in charge of systems say, look, you know, we are way too rigid in defining everything as needing public funding. Uh, and public administration, as the Canada Health Act says, should be in place for medically necessary services. So, you know, things at the edges like pharmacists providing uh, care, um, you know, these are expansions to that issue of for-profit care. In terms of doctors making profit in their clinic, I mean, the vast majority of doctors don't have a profit motive in mind when they're caring for you. If you introduce that profit motive by making them owners of for-profit clinics, you're substantially moving their mindset from the point where they're going to provide you with advice about what's best for you to include
0: what's best for their profit. And the expansion of pharmacies, where would you sit on that question?
1: Well, you know, I think at this current stage, you have to look at, you know the situation we're in with primary care right now, and you know, at least fifteen percent of Canadians not having access to primary care. One of the challenges then is if somebody's on drugs for asthma or high blood pressure, diabetes, and they lose access to their primary care provider, how what are they going to do? You know, now they don't have to go to an emergency department to get their meds refilled. They can get them refilled in a drugstore. I guess that's a good thing. Um, but that's a stopgap solution to me. They should be able to have a relationship base with a primary care team. Um, that to me is a fundamental aspect of Canadian Medicare is everybody needs to have access to a primary care team. It's, you know Without that, you can't get a prescription, you can't get uh, treatment, you can't get referral, you can't get surgery. That's what our system is based on is everybody has a primary care provider.
0: It's a useful transition to, you have a 10 part series in the globe talking about ways of fixing and reforming our healthcare system and acknowledgement that things are, the status quo does need to be improved in a really meaningful, serious way. And of those 10 things, you obviously mentioned access to primary care is an essential piece, community care, mental health, pharma care, transitional care facilities. You run through a long list. It's interesting too, just I've traveled the province a considerable amount recently and Access to primary care comes up everywhere that I've been in a number of different ways. It's not just people, they don't have a nurse practitioner or a family doctor or team-based care in that way, or or individual-based care, even from, from, from someone who is uh, who is in their community. In other cases, people do have a family doctor, but they can't access that team-based or family health office when, when they need the care they need after hours. And so there are two challenges to access to primary care. Mental health and addictions comes up almost everywhere that that I've been as well. So there are big picture pieces that affect every Ontarian or every community across this province that do need to be addressed in a serious way. Of your 10 part series, if you were advising this current premier, what would you say are the top three issues that they need to be seized with that you would pull from, from your top 10? Yeah,
1: well, first of all, as I just mentioned, primary care is foundational to our utilization of healthcare. If you don't have a primary care provider, you're in trouble. Now, my view is that doesn't need to be a family doctor. It could be a nurse practitioner. Uh, There's lots of evidence that says that outcomes if you're being cared for by a nurse practitioner are as good as a family doctor. I agree with with medical associations that this should be in a team-based model, but I always add the comment with everyone working to full-scope practice. So nurse practitioners are capable of providing relationship-based care. They don't need the supervision of family doctors, although it's useful that if they're in a team. If there's a problem that's beyond their training, that problem, you know, that they can refer patients, rarely happens. Ontario's experience with nurse practitioner-like clinics is that most people looked after by nurse practitioners
0: don't need referrals to family doctors, but if necessary. It's I was impressed. Useful. The, the, the Cochrane Library that you quoted in one of your articles say nurse practitioners probably provide equal or possibly even better quality of care compared to primary care doctors. That was a a testament to the ability to expand. We have 25 nurse practitioner led clinics, but, but a testament to the ability to expand that, that, uh, that possibility.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's there in the international literature that nurse practitioners provide care that is cost effective compared to family doctors. And, you know, if you're looking at chronic diseases, so nurse practitioners perhaps better trained in relationship-based care, you know, uh, which is not to say they're better than the family doctor. Family doctors having a medical model of training are find it and fix it, right? They're extremely well attuned to Dealing with patients who have, you know, uh, symptoms and figuring out what those symptoms are related to and instituting a plan of therapy. However, not necessarily either as interested or as well trained to convince Mr. Smith that, you know, Mr. Smith, you really need to lose a little weight and you need to take those blood pressure pills because right now you're at big risk for a stroke or a heart attack. That may be something that I, I, you know, the literature suggests that may be something that nurse practitioners may even do better. And anyway, family doctors and nurse practitioners both have unique skill sets. I think that team-based care that exploits both of the talents present there are essential. And the other thing is, you know, if you look across the country right now, Nathaniel, family doctors have lots of options for earning income. You know, they can sit in their office, they can work in emergency departments, they can serve as hospitalists looking after patients, they can serve in long-term care, they can provide psychotherapy, they can do sports medicine as a focused practice. Like, they aren't necessarily interested in just being in their office providing relationship-based care, whereas that's what nurse practitioners do. So I think the model that every Canadian needs a family doctor is probably not feasible. In addition to not necessarily being the best. We need other folks to do relationship-based care. And of course, it only takes two years post-undergraduate degree to train a nurse practitioner as opposed to six years to train a family doctor after they get a BSC or a BA. So it seems to me to be a good solution for how we get around this, you know, 15 to 20 percent of Canadians don't have a family doctor.
0: Yeah, which is obviously unsustainable and, and people should appreciate. That this isn't just a matter of fairness and better outcomes for those individual patients. This is also when you look at the challenges to our hospital systems, there are people accessing the emergency rooms. There are people accessing hospitals that wouldn't be there if they had access to primary care in a way that they deserve. So it's it's a it's. Everything is connected as you as you as you begin these healthcare conversations. Similarly, and, and how would you round out your top three? So you know, so I would say
1: improve access to specialist care and surgery by implementing two of the things. So I'm going to get four in here. I'm going to cheat. <laughs> on. Number two is going to include both e-referral and e-consult, and moving to community surgery centers to improve access to specialist care and to shorten surgical wait times. That would be my number two, is reform the way we refer patients, not using the fax machine. Can you believe that a life-threatening illness that you have for which you're being referred to a specialist, you're relying on a fax machine for the transmittal of information when digital means of transferring information are available Of course, if it's a digital request request for a specialist, that can be actually streamlined to the appropriate specialist with the shortest waiting list. That's demonstrated that kind of queue management shortens wait times by about 20%. And it provides governments with information they don't have right now, which is how long are people waiting to see specialists? They have information about wait times for surgery, but only if you end up getting surgery. You I mean, do my
0: twenty-seven-year-old have- staff, uh, who helps run my constituency office. Uh, he's lovely, but uh, the local Legion sent us an invitation to one of their Remembrance Day services by fax, and I'm not sure he had ever received a fax before. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. He was like, "What is this? His
1: <laughs> life-threatening illness could be communicated about over that same thing the Legion's using yeah. for anyway." So you know we need to change the way that we refer people, and the technology is there. It's not expensive.
0: Yeah, it's a no brainer. And, and I've read about other systems, especially uh, there are nonprofit systems in the U.S., but I'm sure all around the world where there's a secure messaging system for patients to communicate with their primary care providers. It is all by way you know more than fifty percent of the communication occurs this way. But the technology has been here for years. We should oh, be embracing yeah. this in the, in the in the most in the simplest of ways.
1: Yeah, so that plus community surgery centers will shorten the time that people wait for specialist appointment and necessary surgery. So that's absolutely my number two. Because, you know, when people externally rate the Canadian health system, the two big concerns that are expressed by organizations like the Commonwealth Fund are lousy primary care access and lousy access to specialists and surgery. So, you know, there are solutions to those two. That are not costly.
0: And, are not- and, and it is uh, pretty stark when you do look at Canada as it compares. Uh, I was reading the health innovation report from 2015 and reading just the comparison is between Canada versus Germany. But I mean, patients waiting more than two months, 30% in Canada, Germany is 3%. Patients waiting more than four months or more for elective surgery at the time, it was 18% in Canada, 0% in Germany. And I mean, there there are very stark differences in in the access to not only primary care, but as you're pointing out, access to specialists and and, and surgeries.
1: Well, and and that would be worse today post-pandemic, where we know there's been a big buildup that uh, Canada would fare even worse with that comparison. The the third thing I'm going to mention to you, since uh, you wanted to get three out here, is access to mental health care. Um, And, you know, here again, we can compare ourselves to other countries. Um, The biggest cause of disability in Canadian industry relates to mental health issues, largely related not to serious mental illness like schizophrenia or manic depression, but rather what's referred to as mood disorder. When we talk about mood disorder, we're talking about things that we all know about, right? Depression, anxiety. We all know people who are disabled by depression, anxiety. We all know people who haven't been able to work for years because they just couldn't stand being in the work environment. It was too much mental stress for them. Well, that diagnosis of mood disorder has been demonstrated in the United Kingdom under their national health system is being highly amenable to talk therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy, various... I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I don't really know what I'm talking about when I talk about cognitive behavioral therapy other than the fact that it seems to work based on scientific studies. And, you know, um, this is not very accessible. And when you talk about equity of access... In most cases in Canada, this kind of care is accessed by your credit card or your workplace insurance, not by your OHIP card here in Ontario. It's
0: a huge uh, inequity given the number of people affected by it. And it's a huge enormous. inequity when you consider how central mental health is to overall health. And we, we have finally wrapped our heads around it, I think, as it relates to... You know, you and I discussing it, health care experts, the general population understands in 2018, even our liberal party said mental health care should be part of the uh, Health Canada Act. Uh, and yet and yet sitting here five years later, it's still uncovered and it, it depends upon how much what are you able to afford? So not only is it bad
1: care and inequitable care, but it's also bad industrial policy. You know, if you look at the billions of dollars that are spent on long term disability related to mood disorders, you know, this is a this is a dumb economic approach to how you keep people in the workforce, apart from how you treat people. And you might say, well, we can't afford to give everybody talk therapy. Well, yeah, we sort of can because they've done that in the national health system and in Australia. They pay for Mm -hmm. it differently. The NHS is paid for under your taxes. And, you know, it's been costed out. The NDP in their last, you know, platform costed this out to their credit and suggested that over four years they could offer 12 hours of cognitive. It doesn't cure everybody, uh, but it's got a substantial impact. 60% of people are able to go on without further treatment. It sometimes needs to be combined with drugs. You know, and again, I'm not as an orthopedic surgeon, I'm not going to get into how the drugs work, how they work with talk therapy, simply to say that sometimes drugs are also necessary. (laughs) But these treatments don't need to be offered by doctors. They can be offered by trained therapists. Social workers, nurses, um, psychologists, ver- and trained lay therapists, in some cases, a variety of folks can do this. And what the NDP costed out was this would cost us, when fully implemented, $1.4 billion a year, which is a lot of money until you consider that the healthcare budget in Ontario is <laughs> probably at this point approaching seventy-seven zero billion billion. So for something that is, you know, single percentage increase in how much we cover and pay for, a huge impact could be achieved for Ontarians and Canadians by investing in talk therapy.
0: And the savings come in a number of different ways from what I understand. One is obviously a savings in emergency rooms because you have situations where people are hospitalized in severe instances of untreated psychological distress. You have instances where people attempt suicide or commit suicide and we can't prevent all of that through a modest program as in in the way you describe but but certainly prevent some of that and i was i I was pretty struck by when you talk about the NHS and then the NHS had a 2019 review that, that you write about, and they found that 50% of patients with depression or anxiety will recover if they receive between six and 12 hours of talk therapy. And so that, that speaks for itself in a, in a significant way. Some of the savings accrue directly to government. And then, as you say, as it relates to industrial policy, many of the savings accrue to the broader economy. And And so I'm, I'm glad you put it in your top three, because when I was reading through your series of 10, I, I it was quickly apparent. This is a no-brainer.
1: Yeah, well, you know, there are other things we mentioned there. You know, one of the problems that, you know, Ontario in particular has focused on hallway medicine, there are solutions to hallway medicine that we should be thinking about. But I think when we think about the general problems that Canadians are facing when they look at, you know, getting health care, primary care, access to specialists and surgical care, and mental health care, I bet you, when you go around the province talking to people, those are three of the things that you hear about most commonly.
0: Absolutely, I I mean, and uh, increasingly interesting. It is a healthcare issue, but it's also people frame it as a public safety issue sometimes too. But when we talk about mental health and addictions, whether it's in Thunder Bay or it's in Windsor or or even you know in the east end of Toronto, with uh, in in my home community, people will discuss addictions and how it impacts their downtowns they'll discuss addictions sometimes how people in their own you know loved ones have lost lives as a result of it but often even people who aren't directly affected in in that tragic way they'll point to downtowns and and small businesses and their communities that are affected and and being challenged and it's interesting because it is a it is cast as a public safety problem for some for people who who frame it in that way and the answer is actually a public health answer so we can deliver public safety via public health if we focus on mental health and and treatment in the right way
1: yeah and you know i mean some of this problem <clears throat> is to deep seated issues related to racism Related to you know our history of colonialism with respect to Indigenous folks, you mentioned Thunder Bay, where you know this this is a multifaceted problem that I don't
0: suggest could be solved by instituting six to twelve hours of talk therapy. No, that that would not. This is about housing options and treatment options on demand, and there's a lot more that has to go into this. But again, when you look at the the savings, not only of lives, you know that should be the primary focus. But when you look at Making sure that we are providing the level of care that would ultimately lead to the public safety outcomes that we want. It strikes me it's it's this silly conversation we constantly have in politics for whatever reason. But we we see every public safety challenge in this way as deserving of law enforcement and more law enforcement resources. Whereas the answer to the public safety, it's a public health challenge too, and it needs a public health response. But even oh. when you cast it as a public safety challenge, it's still a public health response that is the answer.
1: You know, there's excellent research in Canada. You mentioned uh, housing, uh, equitable housing, access to housing for people experiencing homelessness who you know, often have mental health challenges of the severe category. And again, here's your orthopedic surgeon talking about schizophrenia. But I know from working in shelters, working in a variety of different volunteer positions that many of the people you see who are experiencing homelessness obviously I have schizophrenia, untreated schizophrenia. And there have been excellent studies done that look at a small investment in housing and support, You know, to make sure you're taking your medications, to make sure you're getting counseling, to make sure that your basic dietary needs are looked after, small investments. And when you compare that to the savings that you get from, as you mentioned, Public safety, when you look at the savings from the jail system, from the court system, from emergency departments, these are very cost effective. And yet we get, you know, even though that research has been done in Canada that shows this is a cost effective means very few people experiencing homelessness with serious mental illness. Illness are actually
0: offered supportive housing. And- I know it's too easy politically to dehumanize them and to go the other the other direction and and make it about being tough on crime. Um, so can I can I ask you? My my last question is in relation, to just on a personal note. So you spent your career in medicine, then you spent your career in managing, uh, it, still in medicine, but in a, in a management role, and you spent a short period of time, as I understand it near the end uh, in a deputy minister role how did how did you find the transition from a lifetime of medical practice to politics and as someone who is increasingly interested in looking at provincial politics despite my current federal role would you have advice as you in terms of looking to transform the health system at the provincial level were there particular lessons learned that that you experienced going through all that that you that you would that you would want to impart as for someone like me thinking about this?
1: <laughs> well, I hope you're not looking to advice from me because, as you say, I spent four years of a 45 year career in Ontario healthcare as Deputy Minister of Health, and I got to say it was the highlight of my career because talk about the opportunity to improve our health system. You know, I think there are a couple of things I'd say. The first is that, you know, uh care is a remarkably aspirational part of what we are as Canadians. You know, the fact that we define our system as one that needs to be there for people on the basis of their need as opposed to their ability to pay starts off the conversation in a good way. Um, the second thing is, and I'm thinking now of Murray Sinclair's, you know, Truth and Reconciliation, so many of the things that we can do to improve social equity in this country, especially for, you know, uh, retracing the impact caused by colonialism, residential schools, relates to healthcare. Right? Healthcare is a social movement in a sense that can affect Canadians' lives and make us better people. When we look at how Canadians look to their governments, you know, I got to tell you, I know you're a federal MP right now. Very few Canadians you know with absolute respect for what's happening in ukraine really think about defense think about foreign policy as issues that impact them on a daily basis they think about two things healthcare education and higher education what affects them what affects their families what affects their their goals and their dreams for their children good healthcare good education and a country of immigrants where we're bringing in the federal government, bringing in 1% new Canadians every year. If we expose them to good Canadian healthcare and good Canadian public education, we're going to have good Canadians coming out of that immigration wave, you know? So to me, um, Canadians look to their governments for healthcare and education is the primary things they look to. And in our system, those are provincial responsibilities. I think health Canada can do more. I'm delighted to see, it seems that we're working to a new accord that the federal government is insisting on accountability. I think that's a good thing. But if you're a provincial leader, you're responsible for health care and education. And to me, those are the things
0: that uh, Canadians feel on a daily basis. I appreciate, I appreciate the time. I appreciate the work you put into identifying that. I, I found it very instructive. Look, looking. I've read a number of things now over the course of bringing myself up to speed on, on healthcare, which is a, a task unto itself. Because as I as I go down this rabbit hole, everything old is new again. Repeatedly, that it's integration challenges in the healthcare system that have existed for decades. When you read reports from 20 years ago or 40 years ago, it's preventative healthcare and it's the the lack of an expansion of our public health insurance system to dental or pharma or mental health services it is access to primary care and at one point it was a doctor shortage now increasingly a nursing shortage and and there are long standing challenges. And so in some ways it's helpful because you know what needs to be done. Uh, and so it's it's been helpful reading your work to, to have a better understanding. And certainly as the province is moving in some cases the wrong direction right now, it's also helpful to, to have an understanding of how we could move it in a much better direction. So anyway, th- thanks, for, thanks for the time. I appreciate oh, listen,
1: it. I, I have to congratulate you for A, doing this work because if you're considering uh, a role in provincial leadership, Starting off with a deep dive into what healthcare policy means in this province, I think is essential. And secondly, you learned a lot, man. You're, uh, I'm impressed. You've learned a lot, and you know the issues, and you're uh, you're able to express them well. So good on you.
0: I appreciate it. Well, well. Well, thanks, Bob. I appreciate the time.
1: Okay. Thanks, Nathaniel. Cheers.
0: Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons. On the healthcare file federally, the Prime Minister will be hosting the premiers on February 7th to make headway towards new health accords. And we've been clear at the federal level that our dollars will come with strings attached, including five priority areas. One, reducing backlogs and supporting our healthcare workers. Two, enhancing access to family health services. Three, and close to my heart, improving mental health and substance use services. Four, helping Canadians age with dignity and closer to home. And finally, five, using health data and digital health more effectively. As always, when it comes to the Uncommons, you can follow us on social media at BUIN8. You can leave a positive review. You should leave a positive review on your platform of choice if you like what we're doing. And otherwise, until next time.